You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Caleb Wilkinson. We're going to be in Psalm 51 this morning. So if uh, you want to follow along in, in a Bible and you don't have one, there should be a Bible uh, below the seat in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible and you want to take one, we just want to give that to you as a gift. Uh, welcome again. If you're a guest here, I just want to say thanks for coming. Uh, it's an honor you'd spend a Sunday morning with us. My name is Caleb and I'm one of the pastors here. We're, we're just grateful you are here. I also want to tell you that uh, we do a podcast called Conversations each week. And so if you have a question during the sermon, you can just text it right up there and we'll seek to address that question in our podcast. What we're going to do this morning is we're just going to jump right in to the word. Uh, it's, again, we're Psalm, it's Psalm 51. We're going to jump right into God's very words to us. Psalm 51, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burn offerings, and whole burn offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of God. And before we 
do anything else, I want to share with you something that I, that I read in my study this week, well after I committed to this text, I might add. The great uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon, called the Prince of Expositors, wrote this about Psalm 51. Often I sat down to it and rose up again without having penned a line. It is a bush burning with fire, yet not consumed. And out of it a voice seemed to cry to me, Draw not hither, put off thy shoes from thy feet. The psalm is very human. Its cries and sobs are one born of woman. But it's freighted with an inspiration all divine, as if the great father were putting words into his child's mouth. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ha, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? I'm going to read that part again. Such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, and exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, ha, where is he who having attempted it can do other than blush at his defeat? So we're going to pray. That's what we need to do. And if, if Spurgeon is right, we should just pray and go home. If Spurgeon's right, I'm going to be blushing a lot this morning. But that's all the more reason to go to God, to the one who wrote these words to us for help. So please pray with me. Well, Father, this, your word, is a bush burning with fire. And we know that you intend to speak to us from it. So what we ask you this morning, Lord, is give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Lord, make our hearts teachable. Put the words you want to put into your children's hearts into us this morning. We need your help. We ask that you keep us awake, keep us diligent, help us love your word more than life. Shape us by your word, Lord. Comfort us, convict us, encourage us, shape us. Help us ultimately, Lord, see you again so that we may savor you and so that we may become like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a penitential psalm. Here David laments and confesses the depths of his great guilt. And here God gives us the gift of a path to walk on when we find ourselves in similar circumstances. It's a model prayer for us to absorb and exhale. It shows us how to lament and confess our great guilt in light of the farthest reaches of God's salvation. Now, many of us here have not murdered a man or have we committed adultery like David did preceding this prayer. But this psalm teaches us a lesson we need just as much as David. It teaches us the most important thing we can possibly know about God. That he's merciful. Spurgeon says that this psalm is given to us as if the great father were putting words into the mouths of his children. So what what words does God want to put into the mouths of his children this morning? 
Well, I think God is teaching us to say this. We live by mercy alone. We live by mercy alone. Our text gives us three reasons we live by mercy alone. First, mercy alone meets broken hearts. And next we'll see mercy alone mends broken hearts. And finally, we see that mercy alone mobilizes broken hearts. So first, we see that mercy alone meets broken hearts. Our psalm begins with a request. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. This request comes with a very humble acknowledgement. I'm broken. I'm a sinner. I have a ruined, stained heart. From the outset, David declares his utter failure, his deep filth, and his utter futility to ever clean himself. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Transgression, iniquity, sin. Three words to describe David's deep-seated, broken heart. And if you paid attention, he's actually not only concerned with his ruined heart, but his ruined record. He says, blot out my transgressions. This literally means to wipe writing out of a book. Sin creates an objective, an authoritative record, a debt that demands a payment. If someone's found guilty, a judge cannot ignore the record. It's authoritative. A criminal's record can only be wiped clean if he or she pays the penalty. Well, David then uses another metaphor that points more to the broken heart that authored the pages of his record. He says, wash me thoroughly. Wash me. Wash me myself. I'm perverse. I'm like a foul, muddy garment that needs to be washed and washed. He's saying, clean my very nature. He's Right here, he's acknowledging the depths of his sin. He, he's not minimizing it or making excuses. So knowing and seeing God's mercy, David takes the first step of repentance And amidst the true state of his heart, he's broken. He's got a broken heart. But friends, we we can't forget the subscript of the psalm, for it reminds us of the context of David's prayer. You can read more about it in 2 Samuel 12. David didn't come to God's mercy first. This wasn't his initiative. David had stolen another man's wife named Bathsheba. And then when she became pregnant, he tried to cover it up. So he invited her husband, who was a soldier at war, back to town in hopes that he would go to his wife. They would would sleep together, and it would all be covered up. But the plan backfires on him because Uriah is more honorable than the king. And he refuses to go spend time with his wife when his fellow soldiers are away from home at war. So what David does is he sends a letter with Uriah back to his commander, and it's essentially a death sentence because the letter orders the commander to stage Uriah's death and make it look like an accident of war. And so this is exactly 
what happens. And David, it seems like he's getting away with it scot-free. So David's heart was hardened with sin. He was trying to hide it. And he thought he got away with it. And then God sent Nathan, the prophet, to confront him. Through Nathan, God was going after David. You see, mercy met David in his sin first. David knew God was merciful before this, but he had become hard-hearted in his sin until his merciful God chased him down and met him. So I just want to be clear. The fact that he's seeing and confessing his sin is because mercy has met his broken heart through the loving initiative, through the loving confrontation of Nathan. In verse 3, he says, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. His sin, it's an accusing presence. It's reminding him continually of his awful failure. The pollution of it is clinging to him. It's haunting him. That's why he's asking, blot out my transgressions. Make clean my dirty record. And then he says something shocking. Look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sights, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This is, this is shocking. David had sex with another man's wife. He ordered his, his servants to go get her. And friends, you don't say no to the king. So at, at best, this is a, a massive abuse of power and probably more likely rape. Okay? So he does this, and then he, and then he executes an innocent man. In all of this, he commands other people to conspire in this. And in doing so, he betrays his country. He wastes their resources, and he just fails fulfilling the role of king. So how can he say, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? This seems outrageous. Tim Keller explains this best when he calls sin treason. Against you, you only have I sinned. How can he say that when he has killed somebody? It's because sin is like treason. If you try to overthrow your own country, you may harm or kill individuals in the process, but you will be tried for treason because you have betrayed the entire country that nurtured you. So every sin is cosmic treason. It's the overthrowing of the rule of the one whom you owe everything. And so far from lessening the breadth of his sin, David's confession becomes all the more radical and intense here. In sinning against people, he sinned against the ultimate judge. Since his sin really is cosmic treason against God first and foremost, this is more weighty, not less. Since he knows the judge and the standard, David is forced to completely accept God's verdict. And the penalty for adultery in Old Testament law was death. And the same went for premeditated murder. So if God were to take David's life, he would be just. David has failed God's minimum standard in order just to stay alive. He doesn't have the right to breathe. David's record, it's placed him on death row. And in order to live, in order to keep breathing, he needs pardon. And again, it's not solely a tarnished record he needs pardon from. Verse 5, he says, Behold, 
I was brought forth in iniquity, and, sin, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, David's not talking about the act in which he was conceived here. His emphasis is, making, is that his crimes were no freak accidents. They were in line with his own character. They are not the result of his culture or his upbringing or some stressful circumstances. They are who he is at the very core. This is the climax of his confession. His sins are his own. He sinned because he is a sinner. His sin is very wide and very deep. Again, this was no isolated incident, no moments of weakness. It's in line with his whole character. Sin inundated David. His heart was in complete ruins. Friends, do you know that this reality of sin engulfs your heart as well? You, you might not have committed the same exact acts, but we have the same type of broken hearts that David does. And it's vital It's vital we see this if we're going to receive Psalm 51 as the gift it's meant to be. If we're ever going to live by mercy alone, we need to see that we commit sins of treason every day. And the seeds of David's specific horrible actions are present and they're living in each of our hearts as well. Like our own hearts, David's heart is broken. It's ruined beyond repair. And because of that, he has a criminal's record that can only be wiped clean if he pays the penalty. His broken heart has put him on death row, and he's not got the ability to take back what he's done or change his evil heart, the cause of it all. So what will he do? Where will he run? We've already seen it, and we'll keep seeing it throughout this psalm. He runs to God's mercy. Back to verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. See, David used three words to describe his ruined heart. Now he uses three words to describe God's mercy. Mercy, steadfast love, and abundant mercy. God's mercy refers to his loving assistance to the pitiful. His steadfast love speaks of God's continual operation of mercy. And this word, abundant mercy, it's it's translated in the NIV as compassion. So this is speaking of God being emotionally moved by our infirmities. So all of the following requests are based on these three words, mercy, steadfast love, compassion, It's clear David does not think he deserves what he's asking for from God. He's begging, appealing to one thing, God's mercy. And note, the greater depth and breadth of his sin, it it means that the mercy would have to be all the more extravagant. If this was just a circumstantial lapse or a moment of weakness, the, the, the mercy needed would be less extravagant. What David's confessing is, What I absolutely require is radical, shocking, far-reaching mercy. Deep, undeserved, resurrecting mercy. Do you guys see how bold this is? Are you you saying what boldness? That's what we should be saying as we see this. 
the refuge he's running to is the God whose law he's broken. The judge whom he sinned against and supposed to execute the penalty is the one he's asking to change his record. This is bold. And friends, we don't come to make such a bold request with such broken hearts because of God's wisdom or because of God's justice or because of God's might. We stand in awe of those things, but we come to God with our brokenness because God meets broken hearts with mercy. James Boyce says, the only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. So how would David know this? How would David know that God is merciful? Well, his prayer is echoing Exodus 34, which is probably the most clear picture of God's character in David's day. Listen to how God describes himself here. He says, I'm the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So essentially, this, God's introduced himself this way. God said, I am mercy. And so knowing his judge is merciful, David, he doesn't despair because of his great sin, but he prays more. He begs the, for the radical removal of his guilt. He's banking that though his sins are many, God's mercy will be more. Maybe this is why James Boyce also says, The very essence of God and the most important thing that sinners can know about him is that he is merciful. Do you know this about God? I mean, that he's merciful? Do do you really know this? David Pallison says, The human conscience is like a fine musical instrument. When in tune, it plays lovely music. When out of tune, it sounds wrong notes. Our conscience rightly oriented has three characteristics, the right standard, the right judge, and the right refuge. So listen, friends, your conscience is like a musical instrument. And in order to play beautiful, lovely music, you need the right standard, you need the right judge, and you need the right refuge. You need to know where to run when you sin. When I was uh, 21, I I called myself a Christian, but I didn't know the right refuge. I'd just been kicked out of college for cheating and and lying, and I, I knew the right standard. I knew what was wrong. I knew I'd broken God's law, and I knew God was the ultimate judge, but I didn't know I could really run to him with such a broken heart. So what I did is I ran to other refuges. I I ran to sex and I ran to alcohol. And I chose to live a life protesting my loss and pain through reckless reckless and selfish living. I I couldn't possibly clean my record, take back what I had done, heal the people I had wronged, or change my wicked heart. So I ran to those things in order to numb my pain, to escape to not feel the loss. At least I thought I could hide there. 
but I couldn't hide. My, my conscience was haunting me, not just because of the sin and the rampage that I was on leading a wake of hurt people in my past, but, but because I was seeing that this was actually in line with my character. I couldn't possibly bleed clean. I had nowhere to run. And I was overwhelmed with regret and with helplessness and with hopelessness. At that time, I, I kept a journal. And there were days when I couldn't write words. All I did is I just colored the picture black because I, I thought that was what best described the darkness I was living in. It only left me drowning in shame and guilt and, and just really terrified. And then I found a little Bible, one of those little Psalm and New Testament Bibles. And I didn't know where to go, so I flipped to the back and I had a little guide there. And I found the word penitence. And it pointed, I didn't really even know what that meant, so I, but I was like, that sounds something like I'm going through. So I, I went to, it pointed me to Psalm 51. And I opened this psalm, and as if the whole earth stopped revolving. I mean, in this moment, everything in my life changed. And you might be asking, why? Because David's sin was public, and it was heinous like mine was. But he had arrived at a different conclusion than I did. We had the same judge and we had the same standard, but he knew where to run straight to God's mercy. God's mercy, God's mercy is where he went. And in this psalm, the same mercy that met David's heart had met mine. And it intends to meet yours as well. So in your shame, what what are you running to this morning? An anguished conscience is a very painful affliction. But feelings of guilt and shame, they're actually good gifts. They signal that something is wrong. Guilt senses failure against a standard that matters. Shame senses a failure before the eyes that matter. These feelings are gifts to us. They, they show us that our conscience, conscience is alive to genuine personal failure before God. But friends, guilt and shame, they're meant to be vehicles, not houses we live in. They're meant to leave some, lead somewhere good. They're meant to lead to God's mercy. So are you drowning in self-condemnation this morning? Maybe you're saying, my boyfriend or my girlfriend and I were wrong to do what we just did. And if you're saying this, but you're blind to the mercies of God, your sense of guilt will drown you. And what you're going to do is just spiral in awful directions. You'll oscillate between moments of pleasure and days of remorse, days of obsession with that failure. You have the right standard if this is you. You have the right judge, but you need the right refuge. It's mercy. So go there. If you don't, guilt will come in and destroy you. But when God's mercy meets us, it invites us out of ourselves to really live. Well, how about, how about you moms and dads in here? You uh, know, our children and our treatment of them can be the clearest reflection of our broken hearts, right? They show us that we're impatient and that we're bitter, that we're harsh, that we're angry, It shows us that we are neglectful and afraid. 
You know you failed God's standard and, and, and you failed God himself in that. So you feel guilt and you feel shame. You feel remorse and regret. Listen, friend, if this is you, you're on the right track. But here's the question. Where do you go next? Self-reproach? Resolutions to change? Self-punishing penance? Maybe rationalization? It was just a bad day at work or just a hard season of work. Escape? Maybe go to your, just stay at work or just stay on your phone? Do you go to compensating by buying them ice cream? Or finally, do you just go to despair when none of those actually work? See, friends, these things will just take you to the same. They'll take us to the same predictable cycle. Remember from last week, the door to hope is hopelessness. And this psalm is a path for you. So walk it. Admit to your God that your heart is broken. And like the opposite side of a magnet, let God's mercy make you alive and pull you to himself. He's merciful. Will you live alone by mercy? Will you let his mercy meet your broken heart? Well, we've seen that God's mercy has compelled David to bring his broken heart. But what exactly does David need God's mercy to do? Uh, he answers that in the next session. Next section, he needs God to fix it. Mercy alone mends, fixes, mends our broken hearts. In verse 6, we see uh, that David is just asking God for something that God himself desires to give. He says, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Then in verse 7, read with me. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Well, we see here that David needs mercy to do two specific things for him. He needs pardon and he needs purity. He needs a new record and he needs a new heart, something mercy alone can do. So first we see his need for pardon. When he's asking God to purge him, what he's literally asking is, God, descend me, unsend me, this isn't a request for rehabilitation. It's a request for deep cleansing. And then he says, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was the plant used to paint the doorpost with the lamb's blood in the Exodus. And it was what was used in all the temple sacrifices. So what David's asking, he's saying, wash me. Wash me with the innocent blood of another and I will be whiter than snow. Friends, we can, if, we're, if you're a Christian, we can get kind of used to this language. Wash me whiter than snow. This is ludicrous. Is this possible? Wash me whiter than snow? Well, what David knows is he knows there's no half measures with God's mercy. And so, so he keeps, he, he, so he asks, you know, give me a complete pardon, a brand new record. And he asks for the emotional experience that would certainly follow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. This 
right here is an unfathomable climax. Rejoice? He just committed adultery. He just murdered a man. He just committed this massive act of treason against the king of the universe. From death row to rejoicing? The feelings of God's displeasure had pierced David like bones that were crushed. Now rejoice? I mean, how does this happen, literally? Well, again, David knows that there's no limits, no limits, no half measures of mercy. And so what what makes his bones rejoice? He says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. David Pallison says, in effect, he asks, God, when you look at me, please don't remember my sin, but your own mercies. Oh, Lord, when you think about me, remember yourself. Folks, this, this prayer will change your experience of failure. It's, it's a prayer of living by mercy alone. Oh, Lord, when you think about me, remember yourself. So now David, having, after having asked for a pardon, he asked for his, another biggest need, a pure heart. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The word he's using right here for create is the same word used for God to make matter and human beings out of nothing. He's, what he's asking for is something only God can provide and something he can never Deserve. He's asking for a miracle of mercy. Men by broken heart. And he's on a roll. He keeps going, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Here in in verse 12, we we see that the goal of his confession is not self-abasement. It's not vulnerability for just vulnerability's sake. His goal is the renewal of joy and gladness that God's faithful have in God's presence. His confession is genuine. This is not godly sorrow here where David just hates the consequences of his sin. David hates the sin itself and he doesn't want to fall back into it. He wants to experience the joy of being in God's presence and to remain faithful to him. It's not that he was saved and now he needs to be saved again. His sin has cut him off from experiencing the God who has already saved him. And he longs to experience God himself again. But there's a huge problem. He knows that the sin that sprang from his heart was what caused his record. So even if he got a new record, he would just trash it right away. He will run again from God unless God does something even more radical than washing him as white as snow. To attain the joy of a healthy relationship with God, he will need a restored heart. He's saying, God, there's nothing more than I want than you. So that I can have you, please give me a new, pure, God-centered, God-satisfied, God-enthroned, God-enthralled, in God-rejoicing heart. Oh, Lord, by your mercy, mend my broken heart. And just to be clear, this miracle of mending, it could be instantaneous or it could be a sustained process. And most often for Christians, it's the latter. 
John Newton says, this is God's way. You are not called to buy, but to beg, not to be strong in yourself, but in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And remember, the growth of a believer is not like a mushroom, but like an oak, which increases slowly, indeed, but surely. Many suns, showers, and frosts pass upon it before it comes to perfection. And in winter, when it seems dead, it is gathering strength at the root. So friends, are you discouraged by how slow God seems to be mending your heart? Do you, do you realize that this work of mercy is often slow by its very nature? David Pallison is helpful here again when he writes, each Christian is on a trajectory from where we are to what we will be. The key to getting a proper view of sanctification is direction. What matters most is not the distance you've covered. It's not the speed you're going. It's not how long you've been a Christian. It's the direction you're heading. He asks, do you remember high school math? A man drives the 300 miles from Boston to Philadelphia. He goes 60 miles per hour for two hours and 40 miles per hour for three hours, then sits in traffic for one hour not moving. If traffic lightens up and he can drive at 30 miles per hour, how many hours will the whole trip take? That was my best math question voice. Uh, well, if you know the formula, and I know some of you already know the answer, if you know the formula, uh, you know, distance equals rate times time, you can figure out it. it's, it's 80 hours. But um, the question is, is sanctification like that? A calculation of how far and how fast and for how long? Pallison says, not really. Not really. The key question in sanctification is whether you're heading in the right direction. If you're heading west to Seattle, you can drive 75 miles per hour for as long as you want, but you'll never get to Philadelphia. And if you're simply sitting outside of Boston and have no idea which direction you're supposed to go, you'll never get anywhere. But if you're heading in the right direction, you can go 10 miles per hour, or 60 miles per hour. You can get stuck in traffic and sit a while. You can get out and walk. You can crawl on your hands and knees. You can even get turned around and head the wrong way for a while. But if you get straightened out again, at some point, you'll get to where you're going. Well, some of you in here are discouraged because God does not seem to be answering this prayer fast enough. His mercy does not seem to be mending your heart or giving you a steadfast spirit. Are, are you discouraged because you're continuing to struggle? Maybe, maybe you're, you're saying something like, I can, I'm, I'm talking to my wife or my husband in the same way I was last year. Or, or you're, you're a child and you say, I still don't know how to respect my parents. I'm, I'm in no better shape than I was in high school. You're not making progress. How, how are you doing pressing into God's mercy in this specific area? The psalm, is, it's a template for you to do so. It's a template for each of us. It gives us a direction for our hearts to travel. It teaches us how to confess, how to mourn, how to pray, and how to wait. So the question is this morning, are you going down this path towards God's mercy? 
If yes, whether you're running or you're crawling on your hands and knees, you should be encouraged. If you're aimed at God's mercy, you're going in the right direction. And his mercy isn't just the destination, it's the whole path that leads there. His mercy alone mends our broken hearts. If you're on the path, if you're aimed a certain way, it's God's mercy is a direction. This is a template for us to live in that direction. His, his mercy mends our hearts, sometimes painfully so, and sometimes radically fast, but his mercy does mend, so stay on the path. Maybe, maybe you're bitter and frustrated, not because of, you're not struggling because of your progress, you're struggling with someone else's progress. If your friend, if the friend you're frustrated at is on this path, be patient because mercy mends over time. And be encouraged because mercy does mend. This is how God wants us to live. Remember, he wants us to live alone by mercy. And we often ask, why doesn't God just remove all my sin right away? Wouldn't that be easier? Well, John Newton answers that question well when he says that by not doing so, we can better see the unchangeableness of his love and the riches of his mercy. Listen to this. It's more illustrated by the multiplied pardons he bestows on his people than if we needed no forgiveness at all. You see, friends, through the slow pace, he's teaching us to live by mercy alone. He often even lets his children continue to struggle with lesser sins in order to protect us from the greater sin of pride. His slow mending, the pace of it, it's mercy because he's teaching us to live by mercy alone. So he protects his children. He doesn't let them arrive and become proud. We're meant to be absorbing and exhaling this psalm all of our days. It's what's best for us. So be encouraged and stay on this path. God intends that we live by mercy alone. Well, now we're in the last section. In the last section of the psalm, we see that the mercy that has met and will mend David's broken heart mobilizes him for a renewed mission. Mercy alone mobilizes broken hearts. David's possession of a new heart will lead him to proclamation. His washing provokes his witness. Look, look at the word then in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. Then. And, and now look at the word will. And sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. If you give me a new heart, then I will teach if you give me new sails, then my boat will sail anew. I just need new sails. There's an eagerness that flows from verse 12 here. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. It's, it's, it's as if this prayer is already being granted. And just see this. David's not, David's going to accept it. He's not going to say something like, we, we can say, sometimes prone to say, well, Lord, you've forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. He's a beggar. Beggars receive. And if we know that we're meant to live by mercy alone, we don't reject it when it comes. Friends, it's important for you to see that this is a template not just for confessing, but for rejoicing. Not just for lamenting, but for praising. 
Look, look at the link between a joyous faith and an infectious, an infectious one, between receiving restoration and leading others to that knowledge. A heart restored by mercy is a heart renewed for mission. A washed heart is a witnessing heart. When mercy meets and mends our hearts, it mobilizes them. Those who have received such great mercy are compelled to broadcast great mercy. And the the transgressors and sinners David's referring to are, are God's people that are backsliding. And David says, I will comfort them with the mercy I desperately need most. We are to do this as well. We're to do this in our counseling, in our witnessing, in our mutual ministry during small group time, and in our singing. This is, this is every Christian's calling. We are to call our friends and family to embrace God's grace from the perspective of ones who deserve to be cast out ourselves. Guys, this is the most winsome way to sing, to witness, to counsel, to encourage from the perspective of ones who deserve to be cast out ourselves. It's mercy alone that mobilizes us. So David wants to proclaim God's righteousness again. What would compel this more than the crowning work of God's mercy to make a sinner, a a murderer like himself, righteous? Mercy alone motivated his confession, and mercy alone will move him to praise. Now, for time's sake, I'm not going to read verses 16 through 9. I plan to, but, 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 but I'll tell you this. If you read them, you can read them again. It, it looks a bit confusing because it seems like God's saying, I don't want sacrifices. But God's the one who ordained them, right? He's the one who ordained them. And then even in the last two verses, it seems like he's delighting them, delighting in them again. What David is saying here is that God doesn't want heartless religious ritual. He hates sacrifices without the right heart. He wants sacrifices with the right heart. You might ask, what is a right heart? A right heart is a broken heart that lives by mercy alone, that knows how little it deserves and how much it's received. This is what Tim Keller calls the eloquence of brokenness. He writes, what is this broken and contrite heart that God wants so much? It's a heart that knows how little it deserves, yet how much it's received. To know only the first truth is to be self-loathing. To know only the second is to be self-satisfied. And both kinds of hearts will be self-absorbed. David is talking instead about hearts broken by costly, free grace, knowing both how lost and how loved we are. This gets us out of ourselves, freeing us from the need to be constantly looking at ourselves. When our lips are opened, we don't speak of ourselves, but of God's praise. So our singing, our counseling, our evangelism depend on us seeing both how lost we are and how loved we are. Do do you see that how mercy mobilizes us? Or do you wonder, do you wonder, where's my gospel zeal? Where's my passion for mission? If you're asking this, one of the likely reasons is because you don't know how loved you are. And if you don't know how loved you are, it's likely that it's because you don't know how lost you've really been. Some of you sort of quietly wish you had a more radical testimony because you think it would give you more zeal. Listen, you don't need to have committed a radical sin to experience the radical love of Christ. What you need to know is this. This is all you need to know. You need to know that your heart is as broken as David's. 
Again, the same seeds of treason that grew in his heart are growing in yours. Friends, do you see that it's grace alone that's caused you to differ from David? The, the, the shock isn't that David did, did these things. The shock is that each of us hasn't done the same exact thing. And here's the thing. If this is you and you haven't committed radical acts of, of sin, like murder or adultery, you should be all the more aware of God's grace, knowing your heart, because he's restrained you from such things. If you see this, if you see that his mercy is, is mending you, it's restraining you, his, his, his mercy has already begun to mobilize you. Let's, let's summarize as we end. David begged to be pardoned, to have a new record. He pleaded to be given a new heart. He said, if God would answer my prayer, I would hear joy and gladness. My, my broken bones would rejoice and I would be mobilized to tell others. Christian, unlike David, we don't have to wait in suspense. Mercy is not some mysterious force out there somewhere that we got to go find. Mercy is a person, a person we know far better than David because we have met Jesus Christ, who is himself mercy. We're going to take communion here in a moment, and this is what we're celebrating. In Jesus, mercy has met us, and we live by mercy alone. In Jesus, we've already received a new record. Colossians 2 says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So we have a new record because Jesus met our broken hearts on the cross, and there he blotted out our sins, something only mercy can do. He purged us of our sin, not by hyssop and lamb's blood, but by nails and by his own blood. And more, we've already been given new hearts. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, behold, the new has come. If David's crushed bones rejoiced at the anticipation of this, how much more should we rejoice having already received it? In in Jesus, mercy has met us. It's mending us and it's mobilizing us so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Friends, Jesus has done far more for us than David's model prayer because he is the answer to it. And because Jesus has already fulfilled it in us, we can say all our days, we will live alone by mercy. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.